Radio. You know, I ask student journalists sometimes, you know, what's the story you can't die without doing? I like it when, when people's eyes light up and they immediately know what story it is. So, you know, you kind of always should have one of those. It means you're still excited about the craft, and still excited about what you're doing, and I kind of liked that it was bothering me and that I couldn't die without doing it. I was why like, why was this the one? story someday that's in some shape or form. I don't know if it'll be for CIR, but I'm going to do it someday. Why do you think this was the one for you? Welcome to the podcast. Today, the FOIA request that lasted half a decade, the gigantic book of an idea that lived inside G.W. Schultz of Reveal and the Center for Investigative Reporting for something like eight years, process by which G.W. made that idea a living, breathing thing, or things with words, a podcast, a documentary, a news app. Over this long period of time, G.W. tracked hundreds and hundreds of Jane and John Doe cases. His investigation revealed just how easily these cases are forgotten, both by law enforcement agencies and the public. He wrote about efforts to get police to better utilize a national database to link missing persons with the unidentified dead, and much more. And we'll get back to that question. As journalists, what is it about certain subjects that grabs us and won't let go? I'm Sean Shinneman, and you are listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. G.W. Schultz works at the California-based Center for Investigative Reporting, although he's stationed at home in Austin, Texas. About eight years ago, he was working in San Francisco at a now-defunct alt-weekly called the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and being mentored uh, by a guy there. named A.C. Thompson. A reporter Thompson. there at the time named A.C. Thompson, who's now ProPublica, you know, took me under his wing pretty quickly. He's been a mentor to me uh, ever since, and he was writing really wonderfully about criminal justice in the Bay Area at the time. So he taught me a lot about the basics of covering criminal justice, where to look for stories, how to think about stories that are overlooked. AC, who, by the way, you can look for on an upcoming episode of this podcast, got GW in the habit of swinging by the medical examiner's office every once in a while to check autopsy reports. On a cork board next to the walk-up window, they would have these flyers that were sort of aging and yellowing at the corners and had charcoal sketches of faces on them and said, you know, do you know who I am? Underneath the photos were the dates the individuals were found. Often they were uh, found floating uh, in the San Francisco Bay underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, suspected suicides. Uh, but it had been so many years uh, since the individuals had been found and still couldn't be named. GW was immediately intrigued and wondered not only about how many of these cases there were in the Bay Area or in California, but even so early on, he was thinking nationally. At the time, and this was 2007 or 2008, GW can't remember for sure, there wasn't a good national database holding data for these Jane and John Doe cases. Based on the advice of medical examiners and advocates for the dead, that was changing. There was a new database rolling out that was funded by the Justice Department called the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. When it went public, NamUs's public interface included information on Doe cases like hair and eye color, location, date, personal belongings found on or near the body, Nobody's required to submit cases to NamUs, so it's not a perfect picture of the issue. Nonetheless, we thought <clears throat> of getting that raw data would still be 
the first public portrait anyone had in the country uh, of these cases. I was like, we, we got to get it because you couldn't. I didn't know how to scrape sites or anything at the time. You could, there was no download function like there is some other federal um, uh, government databases with data sets in them. So GW submitted a FOIA request. Remember, we're still in the 2008-ish arena. These were the very early days of the data set. I just think they were not expecting a FOIA request, and it wasn't something they'd really thought about while they were developing it. It took a while. GW, who moved to the Center for Investigative Reporting in 2008, continued reporting on Homeland Security and surveillance stuff for CIR while his FOIA was being, quote-unquote, processed. But at the same time, he started collecting material for a future story on missing persons cases. He was pulling together news clips and academic papers, congressional testimony, even taking occasional time off to visit conferences of medical examiners and coroners, slowly building up this research folder on the topic. It was just on the back of the stove, something I was working on. And interestingly, it's one of the only FOIA requests I'll probably ever see in my career where I kind of didn't mind if the feds took their time responding to it. The right. reason was that the more time they took giving me the data, the more the case information would accumulate in the system. As advocates convinced medical examiners and coroners to use it and upload case information, so if it took longer, I would only have richer data. I knew, I had a sense at least, it would take a few years for uh, that portrait to get clearer and clearer about these cases. GW checked in on his request every three to six months and just said, hey, I'm here. You owe me this stuff. Don't forget about me. Creating a sense of inevitability that eventually I'm going to get it, and they just had to figure out a way to get it to me. He finally got his first data set a few years later. But typical of the first go-around, it was missing several columns of information. So GW went back, hassled them for more information, which took another eternity. I finally get a data set, probably in... 2013, I think. It's starting to look like what I want to see. But manner of death wasn't in there. I really wanted manner of death. I really wanted to know how many of these individuals were believed to be victims of homicide as opposed to suspected suicides, uh, undetermined manner of death, accidents, things like that. We eventually were able to get that. With the data set in his hands and more or less intact, and having collected hundreds of PDFs on cases around the country over the last five years, GW took the story to his editors. Was it difficult to to convince CIR to really dive in on this? Yeah, no more than, than any other story. Like, editors should be skeptical and resist and subject you to, to a sort, sort of uh, campfire scrutiny, right? I have a buddy at the Wall Street Journal who calls it stadium editing, right? You've got 10 different people asking for 10 different descriptions of the flamingo, like, you should get grilled with a lot of questions about the granular detail of the story that, that will reveal whether or not you've done your homework or not, or whether or not you've got a strong pitch. Uh-huh. It was tough, but no more than anything else I've wanted to do for CIR. As GW told his editors, this would go beyond that classic beginning-of-the-year story that's like, hey, here's how many people were killed last year, which was up or down X from the year prior, the mayor and the police chief are either psyched for this progress or promise to do better. To truly gauge the performance of a police agency, you need to know for 
for instance, how many people were shot but not killed because people survive shootings all the time now with improvements in medicine. So non-fatal shooting injuries. You need to look at solve rates for homicide cases and for non-fatal shooting injuries and stabbings. And you need to look at Jane and John Doe cases. And I felt like it was a, it was a metric that was too underutilized against which we could, we could um, um, determine uh, how well police agencies were doing. CIR bought in and bought in big. They planned a documentary, an hour of radio through their podcast Reveal, a 6,000-word main story plus a handful of sort of side stories that rolled out by the week. They built a data tool. GW's vision from so many years ago was being put to motion. They believed in it. It was stressful to have them believe in me that much. I <laughs> totally believed in the story, so I was like, we got this. I'm not worried about it. Okay, so the reporting began in earnest, and if he wasn't already engrossed, GW now just started to read everything. One book will lead to five more books, and before you know it, you've read like every major book from a Friends Against Apologists in the United States. Right. You know how that goes. Tech on blogs. I'm subscribing to five to ten blogs through RSS feeds that are giving me uh, ideas of where the technology is with human identification, for instance, like beyond DNA. So DNA is a big component. But there are a lot of other techniques that Friends Against Apologists and Friends Pathologists will use to try to confirm someone's identification. Tack on conferences. you got to pick the right ones, but I really believe in them, especially the smaller ones. Tack on these hundreds upon hundreds of cases he'd been sorting through, collecting little clips from Crime Blotter. They're like 200, 250-word stories about how a local sheriff is still trying to identify a six-year-old girl from 17 years ago. And GW now had built this enormous stockpile of resources, this huge base of knowledge, and tons and tons of cases upon which he could now pull to illustrate the elements of the story, which he identified as follows. So one, one element is uh, um, amateur sleuths who get really into these cases. Another element is a police dragging their feet on utilizing new technologies to get these folks identified. Um, uh, another was uh, individuals who are, are victims of violence, victims of homicide. GW narrowed it down to a spreadsheet of maybe 60 or 70 cases to tell these stories. Then he started making records requests. What I really wanted was a complete investigative file for each of these cases, whether it's one page or 700 pages or whatever it was. I wanted to be able to slog through it. Uh, and, and get as much detail out of it as I could. If you've listened to this podcast, or maybe have done your own national project, you know that spreading records requests across the country means you're bound to face the full gamut of responses. And GW did. Some people were like, here, you want the file? Take it. Solve the thing. Let us know. And others were like, wait, the Center for Investigative Reporting? Yeah. No. That is not the Center for Good Publicity. That is for our investigative files on some case from 15 years ago involving uh, a murdered six-year-old. None of this looks like it's going to go well for us. The denial letter never says that, but you always suspect that that's a conversation going on behind the scenes. Regardless, he ended up with thousands of pages of investigative records. And yet the story was led by a long-dead woman known as Mountain Jane Doe a case GW hadn't gleaned from the clips. Instead, it had come forward in a rush with a touch of rare access. 
understand how GW got to the story of Mountain Jane Doe, you have to first meet Todd Matthews. But believe me, you want to meet Todd Matthews. He is, as GW told me, one of the most peculiar characters he'd ever dealt with. But he's just a really interesting character. He's got this thick Appalachian accent. I've always said some of my best friends are dead. Thick goatee, a sort of, uh, uh, he may not like me calling it a mullet, but it's a mullet. And people say I'm sorry, but they were dead when I met him. He's just a really, like, uh, charismatic guy, really engaged in these issues, just, uh, just, walking encyclopedia of knowledge about Jane and John Doe cases in the U.S. It's, it's extraordinary. Matthews used to be one of these super engaged amateur sleuths. And then one day, after having spent like five or six years using the internet to try to match a Jane Doe in Kentucky, he succeeded. Publicity followed. Citizen Sleuth solves cold case. Then came a job at NamUs. And today, he's a spokesman and the top case manager. Reporting-wise, he and I had just dozens and dozens of conversations throughout the course of the story and would talk late at night and early in the morning and, um, you know, just uh, mull over cases around the country. So one day, a little before Thanksgiving last year, Matthews gives GW a call, and he's like, Hey, George. So perfect. We're going to do an exhumation in in Harlan, Kentucky. It's going to be the day before Thanksgiving, this is an opportunity, uh, if you guys want to seize on it, come out and report on it with a camera team, you better do it. CIR seized on it. They came out with a camera team. Scott Inger, formerly of the LA Times, was nabbed as the videographer. He and I got on planes, went out there to Harlan, uh, and filmed this entire exhumation. We didn't realize until later that, that we got a level of access we likely wouldn't get in most places around the country. But we filmed this whole thing, this attempted exhumation of a woman who was uh, first found murdered uh, with stab wounds in 1969 on a trail outside Harlan. The woman was buried in this tiny little cemetery, if you can even call it that, cut out of the Kentucky woods. That's where Scott and GW gathered while authorities dug out the bones one by one. And as GW was careful not to spoil what they found here for readers, I'll do the same. But regard this. When it came time to write, Mountain Jane Doe's case presented an interesting conundrum. The access was undeniable. You had remarkable color. There was a direct connection to Matthews. But the main concern was, do you lead with such an old case? Would people care about a case that went unsolved in 1969 when police just didn't have the same resources to solve these things? So I ended up writing two drafts in the main bar. One built around uh, some cases in Indiana, one built around Mountain Jane Doe. And more and more, the editors really liked Mountain Jane Doe. I really liked her. I didn't think it was too much of a shortcoming that it was an old case, because my view was that an unsolved murder is an unsolved murder. It doesn't suddenly become not the responsibility of a law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. So I liked this idea that if, if there was a possibility police could tackle her case and at least resolve her identity, any newer cases have the same potential, if not better potential. GW felt it would shock people to learn you could be murdered and unnamed for so long. I don't think a lot that necessarily surprises a lot of criminal justice reporters, but I always think about my mom, who's, who's an intelligent woman, but doesn't study criminal justice policy all the time. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know that there's 10,000 of these individuals in a federal database. She knows nothing about these cases. So I tried to stay focused on her reporting and writing this thing out and kind of ex- explaining, you know, then getting into the policy of it and the bigger picture and explaining why it matters and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. 
This is the lead song in the documentary, the Ruby Friedman Orchestra's rendition of You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. I mean, you couldn't go wrong with the lyrics. It was amazing. It almost tells the story of Mountain Jane Doe, but it tells the it story really does. of Harlan really well. There were a couple of Johnny Cash songs we were considering, um, but yeah, as far as like the opening bars of that song and, and um, you know how pointed they are. You will never leave In addition to Mountain Jane Doe, who led the main bar. GW has the story of John Almanderez, whose body was found in Buffalo Bayou in Houston, right up the street from where he lived his entire life. Yet Almanderez went unidentified for 12 years. GW met Almanderez's daughter at an event in Houston for families of the long-term missing. So she was volunteering there. So Saturday, and I started chatting her up. I was just like, I was kind of wondering what would motivate someone to spend their Saturday this way. You know, and I quickly learned that she had just gone through this. Her dad had just been identified the year before. But GW makes you realize with this example is that one, even when a missing person's case has seemed to line up logically with that of an unidentified body, authorities don't always put two and two together. But also, he points to another hurdle you have to clear in these cases. The fact that most of these families aren't really thinking of their missing loved ones as Jane or John Doe's. For a lot of people, it's the last thing on their mind. They think she even thought at times maybe her, her dad ditched the family. She had, she had no, no answers. He just vanished. Her, her parents had uh, recently separated, but he was interacting with her and her sisters on a regular basis, so they were suspicious right away when his calls suddenly ceased. CIR published the main bar on September 2nd and continued to roll out GW's project via shorter installments throughout the month. There were five of them, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about all of them today. There's a pretty interesting piece about the unidentified remains of the victims of serial killers, some of them very well-known serial killers. You should check that out. It took GW roughly eight years to see the culmination of the curiosity first peaked by those yellowed signs in the San Francisco Medical Examiner's office. Bill Keller, the old New York Times editor, once said, he wrote a column at one point about this, about reporters coming to him and saying they wanted to take time off for a book. And he would joke, you know, every book has a book in them, and that's exactly where it should stay. But every, every journalist has a book in them, right? It's the same kind of obsession. Like, what motivates you to want to spend that much time on a, on a single subject? And to some extent, it's inexplicable, but um, it, it just is. Your, your reporting instincts kick in, and, and they're like, you know, we're editors joke about these kinds of stories sometimes, like, oh, he's obsessed with this or that story. or um, But we become obsessed with these stories because we work beats for a long time and get immersed in these subjects, and we start to see um, where the coverage is lacking. Where there's stories overlooked, and that's why we kind of become obsessed. No one told the story the, the way we could. We could get in depth on this. There's only been, the surface has only been scratched. I think it's what motivates people to do books and motivates people to do big projects, investigative projects. We, we know uh, what the stories are that aren't being done.
So at the last minute, we were able to talk to Reveal's senior news apps developer, Michael Corey, about how they built a great web tool for this project. It's geared toward amateur sleuths, and it's already helped make some potential matches between Jane and John Doe's and missing persons. Unfortunately, we couldn't get that conversation into this episode. We will soon be putting the conversation up on our website. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Okay, so thank you all for listening to this episode. And for that matter, thank you for your continued support of the IRE Radio podcast. This is my last episode with IRE, which is, of course, very bittersweet. My lease in Columbia expires the same day this episode comes out, and then I move on to do a final master's project. That will be investigative in nature. I've been doing some investigative work this semester as well, and I really can't tell you how much influence the conversations I've been lucky enough to have on this show stick with me as I do my own reporting. I hope that we've been able to transport half the wisdom shared by our subjects during these interviews into the actual podcast. Thanks to everyone for so kindly taking time away from their own schedules to answer my questions. Truly, it has been a pleasure to work on this and to work with all the fine people at IRE. If you'd like to find links from the episode you just listened to or browse our past shows, head over to ire.org slash podcast. You'll also find our emails there. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is your podcast editor, and she is my friend who I will miss. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Shinneman. Podcast.